Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. This is Mike Lewis from Memory University and well, Doug Battle from Memory University as well, brought to you by the Emory Marketing Analytics Center. Doug, before we get into it, I want to do a little bit of a professor kind of gig here, sort of okay, for the okay. for the people, but you know, the the veneer of intellectual content. So, Doug, when I think about fandom. And, you know, you guys can all dig into this when we we did this uh, short course on fandom analytics that's up on the website still. We did it about a year ago. But the foundations of fandom are in some ways relatively simple, but they're, they're profound for folks that want to go into this business. So, you know, number one, fandom is about belonging. Um, you know, Doug, you are everyone that's listened to this. I was talking to some folks this weekend. He says, the, the question was like, is that kid that's on there with you? Is he a student at Georgia or is he a graduate? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> no, nah, he's a great, he's yeah, a grown he's, man. he's a grown man. But you are clearly a part of Bulldog Nation, and so w- w- within that's any, funny. and so fandom is about belonging. All groups have hierarchies. How are fan hierarchies determined? Right. I mean, you were you were a hardcore fan back in the day on in, in back in Athens, right? I mean, Spike oh, Squad. Yeah. Oh yeah. Paint it up every week, up at who knows how early in the morning to get lined to be front row, um, which is a strange thing to me, by the way, because everybody pushes to get front row of a football game. And actually, front row, you don't have the best view. Like, I like to be like mm-hmm. 30, 40, 50th row, that lower level. But for some reason, students want to be on the front row. I only did because we painted up, and that was kind of what we had to do to get on TV and do our thing. But anyway, that's a whole side note. But yeah, I was, I was pretty intense. Pretty intense Georgia fan. No regrets about that. Love the dogs. Uh, just mellowed out a little bit, become uh, or, or hide my intensity a little bit. It's still down there though. Okay, and so commitment. So an expression of commitment. Yeah. Painting up, wearing shoulder pads. Painting up, especially when it's like uh, seventeen degrees outside. <laughs> well, you get really every extreme in Georgia. You get first game of the year. I mean, my first game was against Clemson. It must have been a hundred degrees and humid outside. By the end of the game, my paint is just. Melting. Melted off. I look horrible. Um, it really was a bad look. Okay. Um, but then later that same season, you get Auburn, and it's 17 degrees, and you're, you know, you're without a shirt on with cold paint. Putting paint on when it's cold is no fun. But yeah, it's, it's all about commitment. Okay, it's about commitment. It's also about knowledge, right? It's part of being in a fan community is sort of knowing the lore, knowing everything that's going on, being an expert. Yeah, yeah. And we to join that uh, 
the Spike Squad, you know, that group, you actually had an interview and they would they would quiz you on on the lore. Oh, I didn't know that. What so yeah. what kind of what what was do you remember any of the tougher questions? Uh well none of them were tough for me. Okay. Um you did have to this was uh, Okay, little, let me stop you there. Okay. And folks, just see what he just did there. None of them were <laughs> tough for me. So he is actually making my point in terms of establishing where he is in this hierarchy. He didn't yeah. have to study. Yeah, no, I you do have to know the I think the tricky one was it's kind of funny, but George is a score. No one really knows the uh not the fight song, but I guess the alma mater. Or what do they call it? Anyway, you had to memorize the lyrics to this song. And then, yeah, they would ask you about what year did Georgia win the national championship. Name so many players from this team. And then there was really basic stuff, like who were Georgia's biggest rivals. Um, because obviously you don't want someone representing uh, the the biggest fans of the university that don't even know that. So it kind of was everything from simple to like, you know, some some trickier stuff, like knowing all the words to different fight songs. And so, you know, just to just to keep score here. So, foundations of fandom. It's like being part of a group and establishing this group hierarchy. So you show commitment, you mm-hmm. demonstrate your knowledge. On a personal level, when Georgia loses, do you feel that loss? Oh yeah. Or or on the other side, I mean, when Georgia and maybe as an Illini fan, I go to the 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 defeat side of it when georgia wins do you feel like you've won something when georgia loses do you feel like there's a personal defeat you have lost yeah it's it's kind of amazing because as a third party when i see other fans of other teams take ownership their team wins a champion and it's a championship and it's like they're a champion and they're they beat me because their team beat my team it's like that's silly that's ridiculous uh but then i find myself watching georgia and when they lose like it legitimately like even as an adult i've gotten better about it but i mean there's no getting around the fact that it hurts to lose a big game when you think that your team is going to win a championship and like i said it seems ridiculous uh when you're being objective and when you're a third party but there's some ownership and and there's some you feel like you lost you know And, and on the flip side you feel like you won i remember i mean even this last weekend georgia played vanderbilt which everyone knows is is a mismatch um, nightmare for Vanderbilt and friends I was with were like why are we like this this is going to be a boring game this is not an exciting game and for me it was like this is going to be fun this is going to be awesome you get three hours of just total domination see how many points we can score without giving up a point um, and I, see I if our you're... third team defense can hold them like to me that's so fun and to the people I was with, one of them played football at West Virginia, and they're both just like, this is a boring game. This is no fun. For me, I had a blast. I thought it was the greatest game of the week. I think your friends lack a sense of like the dramatic arc of a season, right? You <laughs> got to have some of those games that are, you know, high points and those other games, which is just kind of run well, up like the score. For me, I'm, a like, good time. I'm like, well, we got to see our younger guys develop, you know, we'll get yeah. the twos in and get to see, like, I'm, I'm watching for all these things. I'm not just watching for, is it going to come down to the last play of the game? Okay, so, you know, we don't rehearse this, but, you know, you're responding perfectly as a fan. Get the twos in. We <laughs> have to develop the, you know, next yeah, year's yeah. talents, right? Yeah. Okay, and so, as I was observing college football this week, and even when you're talking about seeing fans of other teams overreact seems crazy. So, the the two stories that, really stuck out to me 
Well, and let's sum this all up. And so if fans are these highly knowledgeable, highly committed people that personally are invested in a team, fans very quickly become experts in their own minds. And when experts are exist, experts are going to tend to have strong opinions that are based on their experiences and their knowledge bases. And I think it does end up leading to some craziness. So, Doug, my favorite two moments of fandom for this week were, well, number one was Oklahoma's quarterback. Oklahoma ranked number four in the country is getting booed. Because getting, he throws they're, an they're, interception, and they want chan- to see the true the freshman. Yeah, they're chanting the backup's name during that game. Pretty phenomenal. And, and similar situation in the Auburn game, uh, which Auburn's one of my favorite fan bases uh, because they're, they're one of Georgia's rivals, and they and it's brilliant branding, but they call themselves the family. Like, they, they say, we're, it's Auburn family. You're part of the Auburn family. He's an Auburn man when he joins Auburn. He's part of our family now. We welcome him. And yet, they're booing, first off, the, the son of a former Auburn quarterback, Pat Nix and Bo Nix, um, but a guy that in his first game for Auburn threw a game-winning touchdown pass. In his first season for Auburn, beat Alabama at home and, and was an Auburn legend. Two years later, getting booed off the field by the fans. They don't want to see him anymore. They're tired because he hasn't played well for a couple games. Um, something kind of incredible about fandom and we've seen that with Oklahoma, but I mean, that's a team that's undefeated that's positioned to make the playoff. Um, and, and granted, I don't think they're a very good football team, but nevertheless, booing your quarterback, your five-star quarterback, your quarterback with all the NIL deals. Both of those guys, by the way, have some pretty significant NIL money from my understanding of things. This is, I mean, especially Spencer Rattler, um, getting booed off the field. Uh, which we could have a whole nother conversation about the NIL implications and, and you know, the quarterback play by guys like DJU and Bo Nix and, and Spencer Rattler this year um, for the money that's been invested in them. But it, it says something about fans. It does say that, something that's, about fans. That's really an interesting statement that I, I actually don't even know how to respond to the money that's been invested in them, right? Yeah. Taking yeah. up the, uh, what was Rattler's big deal with? Was it one of the, was it one of the chicken restaurants? He's Canes? got, I mean, I yeah. think, yeah, his big one was Kane's because I remember I did that article. And then Bo Nix has got the Bo Jangles, which is brilliant. Uh, it's Bo yeah. time. Um, but Auburn fans have been saying that for years. Yeah, I mean, DJU's got the Dr. Pepper commercial and, and he's had a really rough season for Clemson. And he, he got, I mean, they were just banking on him. And, and to be fair, I mean, you go back a couple episodes of our podcast, I thought he was going to take the college football world by storm this year. I really did. And I think a lot of people did. And yet, you know, it's kind of shown that this first year at NIL, some of these brands have, have taken a chance on guys that maybe haven't panned out as, as well as they would think. Maybe in the future, brands will wait and see before they invest in these players, before they make them a spokesperson for the brand. We'll see. The other, the other, and again, in some ways, maybe I'm really kind of referring to almost like Twitter reactions. The other story that, really caught my eye was uh the the clemson coach (laughs) dabo sweeney dabo sweeney just getting drilled on twitter from multiple angles yeah and you know they they're he he has the sin of two and two and I, i don't know how many times i saw the the video of him running out running down the hill 
full speed. Running into the field full speed. Looks like Forrest Gump. And they're just and the the, the tagline being running to the uh, the college football playoff to go back on his uh, to 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 suddenly be in favor of expanding the playoff to at least twelve teams. Yeah. Well, he's a funny one because he's he he's very uh, adamant in his opinions, and he's had his opinion. He said years back. I mean, and I say years back. It might have been two years ago. He said, if there ever comes a time where brands are paying college players, he's going to quit coaching. <laughs> um, he thought that was a terrible thing. And then now his his quarterback is the spokesperson for Dr. Pepper. Uh, and then I think he's been against expanding the playoff because Clemson's had somewhat of a monopoly on the playoff as far as the ACC. And as far I mean, they, they pretty much are shooing every year um, with this year being the exception. And yeah, but as far as this fan's wanting him fired and all that i mean it's a guy that took the team i mean they've won two national championships uh beating alabama they've they have a great their position they're well positioned for making the playoff most years they've built up somewhat of a recruiting powerhouse under him but to me the only difference with clemson this year and other years i think most years they're not that good and they just kind of put it all together at the end of the season this year they got to play georgia out the gate which is a 50 50 game and, and looking back, even as a Georgia fan, I think that game could have gone either way. Um, and the narrative changes so much for both team seasons. Georgia loses that game. It's another year. Georgia's still that team. Can't get over the hump. And can't win the big one. And Clemson's, Clemson almost always loses you know, to Syracuse or just some random team on their schedule. This year, it just happened to be NC State early in the season. And they're already one loss because they had that tough game to start it out. And so, you know, are they really that much worse than usual? I don't think so. But I do think it's, or I find it pretty funny that there's people that that think they can do better than Dabo Sweeney as head coach. Right, because that's kind of the 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 great place that that conversation goes very quickly in terms of everyone coaching college football. <laughs> Are you gonna hire who, Nick Saban? Who has the yeah? Who has the track record of Dabo Sweeney? Right. Uh, and, and you know, you you come back to and, and look, you know, one of the things that I think that people need to look at when they are talking about replacing coaches. And this is this, you know, for these expert fans out there, what is essentially the expected or the baseline performance for your team? When you sort of add up everything and you think about, let's say the recruit, the natural recruiting base you have, the size of the stadium, the size of the alumni base, the history, sort of the, the attractiveness of the brand, you know, probably just about every team kind of has a baseline record that that's really a function of what's being invested. <laughs> right. You know, so maybe Notre Dame is a given the history and the alumni base. Maybe they're a nine and three team or yeah, a ten and two. I would two say team. like at the very least eight and four. Right. Bama, well, Bama, it feels like is a <laughs> their minimum wins for a season is like twelve. Yeah, but this is because <laughs> you have grown up in an era. You know, before before Bama found Saban, Saban. Th- they had some rough times there. Oh, I remember those. I remember oh. Auburn beating them six times in a row. Uh, the the saying in Alabama was "fear the thumb" when they were at five going on six, but um, fear so, the so, th- or four so, going on five rather. So for if if you're my if you're a fan like me, if you're an Illini guy, you know what's the natural sort of break even point for that football team? It it, it might be something like six and six, and yeah. so teams really need to. 
and almost no one sort of digs into the side of that and looks at the investment that is going on. And let's say that, and again, you, you just think about the difference. If you're the head football coach at Texas versus if you're the head football coach at Vermont, you're going to have mm-hmm. different levels of talent. And, the, and then there's a second part of that too. It's not just sort of the absolute level of resources, but the comparative level of resources on your local, on your local stage. So one of the things that Ohio State always has going for it in the Big Ten is that they've got a revenue profile and a recruiting base in the state of Ohio that frankly blows away everything else in the Big Ten, but would probably be relatively commonplace in the SEC, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's the amount that you're devoting and sort of the amount you're devoting relative to the to the competition. And so when I think about Clemson. The, da- the Dabo Sweeney, this strikes me as almost kind of a recent phenomenon. It's been going on for a while now. But Clemson's not. Uh, is Clemson, uh, you, you tell me, Doug, as a, as a younger guy, is Clemson in the halls of greatness with, you know, and I don't know what the right word is, the, the truly elite, the Alabamas, USC's, Notre Dame's, are they permanently in that club or are no. they temporary members? No, they're temporary members. Fortunately for them, in the college football playoff era, if you, if you start college football history with the beginning of the playoff, absolutely, they're in that conversation. USC is not. Uh, right. But, but when you're talking the history of college football, Clemson is not a team that's historically been in that conversation. Under Dabo Sweeney, they have entered the chat. They have entered the <laughs> conversation. They have joined those ranks temporarily, like you said, and it's kind of on a year-to-year thing where it's like, it's felt like, you know, I, I think there's just this new expectation after you win a championship and particularly win two championships. When you're competing with Alabama, the expectations to win a championship every year and everything short of that is a huge disappointment. Problem is there's a handful of teams that feel that way and the large majority of them end up very disappointed every single season. I think you look at LSU, that's a team that's historically probably much better than Clemson. They go have one of the best college football teams of all time two years ago. And I think Edo's probably on the hot seat after this year or next year, but he hasn't really had a good season other than that one season. So it's, it's kind of how college football works. But nevertheless, Clemson's a team that has consistently outperformed the USC's and Texas's of the world and Notre Dame's of the world in the last 10 years under Dabo. Um, and yet there's still fans that think he's not getting the job done. If you have a, if you have a coach that puts you in it as a top five program, <laughs> do not want that coach fired, right? I mean, yeah, that's perfect. just the bottom line. That's yeah. the bottom line. That's, uh, you know, and even as a, as a Georgia guy and, and pulling for Georgia and watching them come up short under Kirby Smart several times in the last four years. Um, and some of it is there are games where it feels like if we had better coaching, we would have won this big game. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is when you have a coach that has you in the conversation every single year, you're always top five ish. It's just a matter of time before you catch a break, before you get one special player, you know, the Cam Newton or the Tim Tebow type player that can just carry you. Um, but you, you do not want to fire your coach if you're in that position. We've seen it a million times in sports. And I think the more iffy ones are like the Mark Richt, you know, 10 win, you know, he won 40 games in his last four years at Georgia. That's one where it's like, do you fire him or not? I don't know. Um, Auburn with Gus Malzahn, like that was a team that was could beat Alabama every couple of years and, and made the playoff or not the playoff, but they made a national championship game. 
under him and it's like do you fire him or is it going to be worse without him like what's their ceiling what's their floor it's kind of tricky with those teams but when you're Clemson and you're in the college football playoff every year except maybe this one year so maybe like six out of seven years yeah you don't fire the coach that's insane but that's that's fandom man that's what fans do they they overreact well and let me highlight just something you said there too you know You've, you've got to update and be realistic about where your club's at. Because, you know, as you're having this conversation, you're talking about, you know, like, the, Georgia's really kind of a fascinating one. In that oh, yeah. Georgia's always been a nice football program. But, you know, the reality is, you know, and again, this is where you got to understand the outside factors as well. The state of Georgia has grown tremendously in population over the last generation. You know, the, the city of Atlanta has grown rapidly in size and so georgia was a really nice program that is now really has almost everything going for it it's close enough to a major metro area it's in a football hotbed it's got an alumni base that is incredibly loyal and incredibly large right it is the school in this state sorry tech so it's not like the the Florida schools that are fighting with each other, the Miami versus Florida State versus Florida, and so it, it is an interesting one. Well, I mean, and when you bring up Mark Richt, it's like, well, when do you move on to the next one? But Georgia probably is now one of those programs that has moved from a generation ago. They're probably you know their core, their sort of their their baseline was top fifteen, top twenty program. They probably are always going to be a top 10 program as long as they have decent coaching moving forward it's yeah. just it's just the, how it's the reality of the it, it, it in some ways it's the economics of the situation driving the on-field success yeah and they should be you know given the current circumstances but the interesting thing about the georgia fan base to me is it's much like alabama where there's this expectation every year in the sense of if we don't win a national championship we are failing our coaches are failing us we're not recruiting well enough. We're not. And historically, unlike Alabama, unlike Notre Dame, unlike USC, unlike a lot of these teams, Georgia is not a historical powerhouse at that level as far as championships are concerned. This is a team that, you know, has like hardly a handful of championships over its entire existence. Um, I think, you know, historically, Georgia Tech may have it beat in some areas, which is amazing to think now because it's not even close. And even looking at Notre Dame and thinking, you know, that's a team with all the history and all the championships. Georgia's three and zero against Notre Dame. They never lose to Notre Dame. They're, you know, they're, they're, uh, and in the Dabo Sweeney Clemson years, I think Georgia's two and one against Clemson. They're better than those teams, but yet they don't win the championships that those teams win. So the expectation to win a championship every year might be misplaced well, um, when you're looking well, at a historical perspective. But when you look at, at the current circumstances and seeing, okay, they're in a recruiting hotbed, they've got these resources, they've got, I mean, they have no excuse not to be winning championships. So there, there's two sides to it. You can look at yeah. it from, from just a history well, perspective or just, you know, kind of a modern football perspective, which I think Clemson is kind of looking at things only from a modern football no, perspective. Clemson fans are spoiled and out of yeah. hand. But, but I do want to say something about the Notre Dame because Notre Dame is a great example of what yeah. what we're talking about. Because in some ways, Notre Dame is the opposite of Georgia in terms of the economic forces moving in Georgia's favor. Notre right. Dame, a lot of Notre Dame's strength was being the Catholic school for the Midwest, the folks in Chicago and the folks in the Northeast, as that identity group has 
faded a little bit in terms of, you know, all these, you know, it's like imagine all these big Catholic boys on the south side of Chicago wanting to go play football at Notre Dame. Notre Dame has fallen off, right? Yeah. And it's, it, it's something that you don't observe because it's not something that's really directly connected to Notre Dame, but that was the foundation for them. So Notre Dame probably weakens over time. And look, Notre Dame's also a great example of how that brand equity from what Newt Rockney, you know, still echoes through the, the modern era. Doug, the other, the other story, I was at a, a party over the weekend where there are a bunch of folks from Pittsburgh. Oh, man. And they have given up on Ben Roethlisberger, I think. Oh, wow. And, and so it's, you know, it, it's almost always, and, and look, just what we're talking about here today, you know, I, I start this off, you know, thinking about some fundamentals of fandom, but, you know, as you start to sort of break down all the examples, Oklahoma wants to bring in the freshman quarterback. Dabo Sweeney lost Trevor Lawrence to the NFL. Um, I think the consensus in Pittsburgh is that the Steelers held on to Ben to Big Ben for one year too long. Yeah. And so a lot of these stories, even though we're mostly talking about coaches, do come back to you know they they come back to the focal point of these these teams and these programs of of the quarterback. Now, the other thing that you know, as I was putting this together and just thinking about some of these examples. You know, this idea that fans end up acting as experts, sort of amateur, amateur experts, let's call them, passionate amateur experts. And when we start to think about quarterbacks, I will always come back to the Parcells rules. And I, I've probably talked about the Parcells rules a little bit. I think we did here. in Fanal you a little bit, yeah. Right. That, you know, Bill Parcells was the, the head coach of the New York Giants, Hall of Fame NFL coach. And he got a lot of credit for being an evaluator of quarterbacks. And yeah. his his Parcells rules, I think he's almost faded a little bit. As you know, he's you know, I don't I don't know if uh, Coach Parcells is actually still alive, but you know, he's you know, his impact on the NFL is fading, right? Um, I think he still has. A, I think Belichick may have been a Parcells guy, so he still you know has his his influence is still felt. But the Parcells rules included things like be a three-year starter. Be a, th This was for a guy to be draftable. So to be a three-year starter, to be a senior in college, graduate from college, start 30 games, win 23 games. And then there's some stuff about touchdown-to-interception ratios and pass percentages. But so much of what he was talking about was really about the quarterback having a track record. Mm -hmm. And the quarterback having enough experience, whereas perhaps you could say that the game is going to be real, it, the game is going to slow down for him, right? right. You, you, you're playing a new sport, you get out there, so much, so much stim, stimuli going on, it's too fast for you. And as you gain some experience, you become an expert on, in your game, it slows down. So that was the big thing he was looking for. So as we have all these kind of coaching and quarterback stories, and we think about Ben Roethlisberger and this question, do the Steelers stick with a guy too long? Well, the other side of that in the NFL this year is we had this massive quarterback draft class of Trevor Lawrence, Mac Jones, Justin Fields. Um, Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson. That these guys are getting hammered out there. Yeah. 
So I think yeah. after a few years of people wondering if the Parcells rules were antiquated, that you you put these guys in, you built the offense around them, you, you hand them the keys to the team, and they were off and running, and they were rookie salary, so it was the way to go. Maybe maybe we're now swinging back to to you know you got to have the experience. Yeah, I mean common thought for me growing up in the NFL was guys would sit their first year almost every time in the NFL, those rookie quarterbacks, they'd sit behind a veteran. And I remember uh, as a Giants fan, it was uh, Kurt Warner. Giants brought in Kurt Warner when they brought in Eli Manning. And they sat Eli behind him for a good chunk of that first season um, before starting him. And I think the most recent example was Patrick Mahomes in, in Kansas City, uh, not starting, not playing as a, as a rookie. And then taking over his second year and, and never looking back for Alex Smith, who was a veteran, a very, very solid veteran quarterback. Um, but nowadays, it seems like if you spend that first pick on a quarterback, you're throwing him into the fire every time. And we've seen examples of it working. I think uh, maybe Lamar Jackson, um, uh, Russell Wilson it was probably the earliest example I can think of as, uh, in this generation of quarterbacks. Um, so a lot of those dual threat guys, now that I think of it, like Kyler Murray. Um, but yeah, more recently, you, you take kids at, straight out of high school, I mean, straight out of college, excuse me, that are used to playing, like Trevor Lawrence, for example. He was The team he was on was better than their competition for all but, what, three games of his college career. And all of a sudden, he's, he's on a team that's far inferior to his competition every single game. He's behind a bad offensive line. His receivers are dropping the ball. You do that to a couple of these guys, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields. Um, it's not always pretty. I don't know that it would be pretty if you put Tom Brady back there, to be frank. I don't know if it'd be pretty if you put Aaron Rodgers back there. That's a very, very, very tough situation to well, throw and, someone who's never played an NFL snap and into. Let's, just, let's stay with Trevor Lawrence. I mean, to me, you start to raise the question of, you know, suddenly, not only does this guy have the increased speed of the game and he's behind a maybe he's on a relatively bad team now you're adding a different kind of mental component yeah right and so part of this part of this issue of having you know what in the parcels rules is it's got to be this notion that they've got and again lawrence is probably the outlier in all this in terms of how much experience he actually had at at clemson mm. but i think you're right you know i and we talked about this a while back. How many games has he lost since high school through college? Three, maybe. And now he is like seeing the game of football from a totally different angle that's <laughs> yeah. probably much, much less enjoyable. <sighs> bringing in a, you know, bringing in a, bringing in an Andy Dalton, you know, something, you know, one of these kind of journeyman quarterbacks and let them take the hit while you continue to invest in the team, you know, does that pay two benefits? One buys you some time to put some talent around them and also, you know, gives the guy sort of an easy entry point to it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Well, I think, you know, another aspect of that is the health of the player. That's a, a hefty investment, a number one pick. Look last year at Joe Burrow throwing him out there for the Bengals. Not that he wasn't fully capable of performing at just as high as level as the next quarterback, uh, but tears his ACL. I mean, he was running for his life the whole season. Every time I watched him, he's just getting hit. It's a lot like watching Trevor Lawrence now or Zach Wilson or any of these guys. Um, they don't have protection. They don't have weapons. They don't have 
they are just they are just targets and they are just thrown to the wolves. And I gotta say, you know, there's a lot of people that are critical of how much money uh, f- professional athletes make to go out and play a game. I don't know. These guys might be getting their money's worth to go out there and and get absolutely destroyed by these enormous freak defensive players in the NFL week after week after week as a quarterback. Like that sounds horrible to me. I'd much rather be uh, the the clipboard holder on the sideline. But um, okay, well, uh, if you're talking about physical damage, I think we've got to go to the most dramatic story over the weekend for these rookie quarterbacks, which is. Justin Fields getting oh, the call man. for the Bears yeah. against a really talented Cleveland Brown defense. Yep. And I think I could be I'm not gonna look this up, but I think it was six completions for one yard yeah. and I'm nine sacks. Nine sacks. And <sighs> the coverage of that is astonishing. And I was talking to some of the people in Chicago. It, it's like universally universe look, Justin Fields continues to be the most interesting media story. Yeah. Almost every week in, week out, you know, from, oh, he's not playing at Georgia. Oh, he's transferring and he doesn't have to sit out. Oh, he's leading a player's revolt to get in there. Oh, he's his draft stock is job, dropping. Oh, yeah. the Bears are going to put Andy Dalton in there. Oh, Bears now were... they've, they've played him and they don't, the coaching staff doesn't seem to have put any effort at all into designing a scheme. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's, he's just that guy. He always, I think he always will be, but he's a guy too that I, you know, I thought he'd probably have the most success of any of these quarterbacks so far. It's looking like Mac Jones is that guy. Um, not that any of them have done tremendously well, like Justin Herbert did last year, but uh, Justin Fields certainly hasn't looked like he's going to win Rookie of the Year in, in his early playing time for the Bears. Not that he's always been put in a great position, but you know, to me, it's it's kind of a killer for that fan base. That's a fan base that. I think when Andy Dalton plays, as much as if you're the Bears management, you're hearing it from the fans because they want to see Justin Fields and they think you're blowing it by not putting Fields out there. You put them out there like they did this week and the results are the same or worse. And it's like, what do they have to, to cling to for hope now? I mean, I, we talk about hope all the time when we're talking about fandom. And it's like when you're, <laughs> when you're Justin oh. Fields, you know, savior Doug, Doug, player, I got an answer. goes out there and plays like... Yeah. What they're hoping now is for the head coach to be fired oh, yeah. before the next game. That's yeah, and next they, will be the GM. Yeah, but um, but you know, Fields is an interesting one, no doubt. Um, I didn't watch that game, so I can't speak too much on his performance versus how much. I'm sure the offensive line was horrible if he was sacked nine times, but he also is one that I mean, there was a time at Georgia where he looked like a deer in headlights, and people love to look back and say. How did Georgia pick Jake Fromm over him? And I will be that guy. I will be that guy that's like, man, we made the wrong choice. Kirby Smart made the wrong choice on that one. But with that said, as a freshman in college, when everyone was being critical about him not being on the field, when he would go out on the field, he would take sacks. He would, you know, he he looked like he didn't know what was going on. He looked, I mean, he really struggled a lot uh, when he played elite competition. And so part of it is like maybe it's coaching, but maybe like there really is something there. There's a reason why Andy Dalton was starting. There's a reason why Jake Fromm was in front of him, even though neither of them are the more talented athlete, uh, the more talented quarterback. Time will tell with Justin Fields. I think he's an interesting one. Uh, The most entertaining rookie performance I've seen this year was uh, Zach Wilson for the Jets. This was last week against the Patriots. Probably the single worst NFL quarterback performance I've seen in my life. 
um, in New York I, I, at home. I didn't. I didn't see that one. I mean, I know both New York. I, I think the city of New York is what zero and six at this point. Giants haven't won. I know that much. Yeah, I, I, and I think I, I mean checking the stat line, Lawrence and uh, Wilson both have seven interceptions three games in. So it me. sounds like this has been, yeah. Rough. Yeah, it's, it's been rough. It's, you know, NFL draft time, all the hype's about these quarterbacks, your team gets them, and then it's like, man, I just can't wait to see these guys play. And then now they're out there. I mean, Wilson was throwing the ball straight. It looked like, you know, I, I, part of me watching it was thinking, and, and having watched Bo Nix this last week at Auburn, I was like, what if Bo Nix had gone to BYU and dominated that conference? Would he have been the, the number two pick in the draft? You know, it, like, is it the level of competition cards that made Zach Wilson look so good? Because he looked so bad like he was throwing the ball directly to defenders he was running with zero awareness of who was behind him and who was in front of him and what was going on around him he's throwing the ball in the crowd see i mean he 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 was lost out there and his team just kept putting him back out in the middle of the field to fail over and over again well and i you know i think a lot of the rookie quarterbacks are looking like that where it's like you know, it's like it, the game just seems too fast. It, it almost yeah. appears like at the pro level, maybe there are 13 or 14 defenders and they're used to playing against yeah. 11, right? No, actually, yeah, it feels that way. But on the other side of it, and th- this was kind of, you know, looking at these things collectively, it, you know, then you have Aaron Rodgers who is back to having the ability to make passes where he's got about a three-inch gap you know, just over a defender's hands to the only place where the receiver could have caught it. And, I mean, Rodgers, in, in comparison to some of these young players, looked like a magician out there over the weekend. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, sticking with the Green Bay Packers there, that's a team that was heavily criticized for taking Jordan Love in last year's draft as a quarterback. But let's think about this. The way we're seeing these quarterbacks, and I'm playing devil's advocate here because I'm, I was as big a critic as anyone of that pick. But the way we're seeing these rookie quarterbacks perform and contrast that with Aaron Rodgers, contrast that with him sitting behind Brett Favre for several years, is it not a horrible strategy for a franchise to take their next guy while they still have a veteran that can compete at a high level and let him develop for a few years and so that when his time to start comes, you know, when, it times, uh, when the time comes for changing guard at the quarterback, you don't have a Zach Wilson situation where you're, you're feeding someone to the wolves, but you got someone that's prepped, that's that's been in the NFL, that's gotten used to the speed of it, and that can perform at that level. That said, am I saying Jordan Love is the guy in Green Bay? I still, I've just never been a believer in him. But I don't hate the strategy. I don't hate taking your next quarterback while you still have a guy that can perform. Well, you know what? This is where the realities of the business, and the business is based on power and marketability and brands where the realities of the business are probably creating something where you just got to navigate the process. Because I think, you know what, if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers, you probably should have drafted the heir apparent two years ago and kind of lived with what happened as Roethlisberger is sort of a... Roethlisberger is probably a Hall of Fame player, but I don't think... In most years, Roethlisberger has not been an elite talent. But if you've got a Tom Brady or an Aaron Rodgers, then I think, you know, it, look, everything comes back to Michael Jordan. Everything uh, comes back to the exactly last dance, exactly where right? I was going to go with this, yep. And you have almost got to bring them in as a full partner and say, how many more years do you want to play 
And, you know, are you willing to help us work in your, you know, you've almost got to, you can't just, you can't just sort of pretend you're Jerry Krause or whoever the Packers GM is and that these people are robots. They've got enough power that you have to include them in the decision process. And that's got to be tough, right? And, you know, players' egos, they always want to play too long. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that you have a cho- choice unless you want to, if you want to avoid having these kind of really bad situations, which are almost like total resets. Jordan Love might be, might be a great NFL player. He may also have had his confidence in broken and this disruption in terms of playing a lot. Mm-hmm. That this may have gotten into his head. It's, you know, when the players have this much power, I mean, because you think about other other leagues, if you're drafting in the Los Angeles Lakers, does LeBron get a vote? Yeah, he yeah. does. Yeah, um, probably makes the pick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we've learned anything from even LeBron, but LeBron, Jordan, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, anyone in the GOAT conversation, those guys have seemed to to surpass your expectations for them with their age. Like LeBron James, who I, you know, it's not like he's my favorite player or anything like that, but for the age that he's at, I would have thought he would have fallen off. I mean, people forget he's, he's one year younger than Carmelo Anthony, who has been past his prime for, it seems like 10 years. And anyone in this GOAT conversation, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, and, and going back to Jordan, um, they seem to do that. They seem to stay at that high level because there's certain things about their game that separate them from everyone else that don't go away. There's certain intrinsic qualities about them that keep them playing at a high level. And so it's like, if you have one of those guys, I kind of feel like you got to just ride. Like, I'll let them show me that they're not going to be good anymore. I'm not going to bet that Aaron Rodgers won't be good when he's 37 or, or whatever age it might be where you would, typically draw the line and say we got to have a different quarterback by then because LeBron's shown that I mean he's still when he's healthy he's he's one of the best players in the league he can be the best player in the league on any given night I think Jordan was that way I mean people talk about Jordan with the Wizards like he was some bad player um he was he was still an all-star for them and he was still you know he still had that championship mentality he just wasn't on a championship caliber team I think if you surround that same player I think you put him on the Lakers instead of Kobe with Shaq uh, he's probably winning a championship too. So, you know, uh, with the, with these Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady type guys, I think what we've learned is you don't move on from those guys until they show you that they just don't have it anymore or that they don't want to play anymore. But Ben Roethlisberger is a tough one because the Steelers probably have some kind of bias to him because they feel like he's that guy because he won him two Super Bowls. Um, but he, another guy, same draft class as Eli Manning and Phillip Rivers, both of whom are retired, both of whom were past their primes five years ago betting on Ben Roethlisberger to perform at the same level he did when he was winning Super Bowls is, is probably not the best bet. But I think they're going with that Michael Jordan strategy, the, you know, the anti-Jerry Krause strategy of like, let's ride it out till we know it's done. And I think now they know it's done. Yeah. But problem is you got 13 or 14 more games this yep. year. And, yep. and you didn't draft a guy. You, know, you went in the opposite direction. You drafted talent around Ben. and Yeah. Doesn't really matter now. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah. Okay, Doug. So looking ahead, what's uh, I, I know what I'm looking forward to in the next week. Uh, what are you looking forward to? Well, I mean, if you're asking me personally, what I'm looking forward to, Georgia Bulldogs uh, number two take on number eight Arkansas at home. It's a noon game, which is ridiculous, but College Game Day is going to be there. 
I am not going to be there, unfortunately. But it's, uh, you know, I, I love college football Saturdays. I don't take them for granted. I wait for them all year. I'm enjoying the heck out of them. Um, Giants are off to a rough start, as is my fantasy team. So NFL, I don't even know what I'm looking for at this point. It's kind of like the most fun part is watching the former Georgia guys succeed. And you're like, oh, Matthew Stafford had a good day. That's fun. Doug, I think that was the perfect answer. You know, if our (laughs) role in this is the the enthusiastic fan versus the jaded professor, it was the perfect answer. Because what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Is Tampa Bay. Playing New England on Sunday oh. night. Yeah, that'll be fine. That'll be you know, fine. This is these were two guys that were well, where completely is the, where's intertwined. That game, where's that game taking place? Is it in Foxborough? Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the New England Patriots. Oh man. Yeah, that's gonna be something. I wonder, like, do the did the Patriots fans like kind of pull for Tom Brady against their own team? Like, I feel like Tom Brady is more of their history than any like than all the players on their roster right now combined i mean easily and so uh, like that's got to be oh, weird but like do they boo him when he goes running out for the page uh, for the buccaneers or when he scores a touchdown and, and gronk spikes the ball are they booing you know like you're, I, you're I don't stomping. know who's number two on the patriots all-time great list i mean drew, drew bledsoe? bledsoe yeah uh, um jim plunkett i mean it's no, he is the he is the he, uh, on the New England Patriots Mount Rushmore. There's actually four Tom, Tom Brady heads. No, there's three, and there's a Gronk. There's got to yeah. be a Gronk on there. <laughs> but yeah, when Gronk spikes that ball in the end zone, or you know, are fans booing, or are they just kind of like happy to see? You know, it's like seeing a like a the, one of the new Star Wars movies where they reference one of the really old Star Wars movies, where everyone starts cheering because they're like, "Oh yeah, that reminds me of my childhood. I remember that. I remember Chewbacca." I remember R2-D2. Um, do they start cheering or are they getting mad because they're like, hey, these yeah. guys, let, they betrayed us. They left us and won, won a Super Bowl for someone else. We hate them. I'm not going to claim to be a Boston, uh, an expert into Boston fan psychology, but as one of these sort of true core <laughs> Northeast urban centers, you know, you got to think that they are hostile to the enemy. <laughs> no matter what. You, and everyone becomes the enemy as soon as they change their clothing, right? The old Seinfeld yeah. line rooting for the clothes. But I bet you're right that this is such a special situation that they don't know. I'm going to guess they don't know what to do, and they will actually they will actually end up cheering for Brady at points in that game. I like, they I will think be they a, sort cheer of a for him. I think psychological they, mess. I think they cheer for him when he, when they announce him a starter and he waves the crowd and they do some tribute to him. Uh, they do that in the NBA all the time with guys that, you know, like LeBron, they'll, they'll do something in Cleveland yeah. and the fans will, you know, be like, Hey, he brought us a championship, did what he said he was going to do. We appreciate it. And we're here to watch him play, <laughs> but we still want our team to win. Uh, I, I kind of expect that, but yeah, with it being the Northeast, I just think like with Northeast, I just think Philadelphia booing Santa Claus every year. Right. I just kind of bucket all of those fan bases, particularly the New York, the Philadelphia and, and the New England, you know, sure, those fan bases. I think they're going to be booing. They're going to be hostile. That's just what when they do. When your history is a bunch of blue, your fans are a bunch of blue collar guys, and it was always cold and miserable in terms of the weather. <laughs> that's just that's what you the do. fandom you get. Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> Buffalo Bills. That that's kind of them too. But uh, but I mean, I remember LeBron returning to Cleveland when he went to Miami. 
and they were hostile toward and they were burning jerseys they were all kinds of stuff i don't know that tom brady is hated by new england in that way the patriots fans i know they will say that their second team now is the buccaneers because they they love tom brady so much they want to see him succeed and be the greatest i mean maybe the danger is that they end up booing everyone if if mac jones has a tough game and throws some picks <laughs> While Ooh. Brady is, you know, while Brady's putting a, you know, putting a bunch of points on the board, maybe yeah. everyone gets booed. Uh, I don't know that, but from a fandom perspective, that that's pro- that's like the Super Bowl of like, how will this fandom react to the situation? I'm I I'm glad you pointed that one out to me, Mike, because I'm now looking forward to that as much as anything well, else in sports this week. And, and let's let's be honest too. I mean, I want to. I want to watch every Bill Belichick press conference this week going into that game because, you know, that sort of head down, barely look at making eye contact, maybe have the hood on, the hood on beautiful, a thing of beauty acting like there's nothing personal, you know, just coach speak acting like there's no, he's not concerned about, you know, Tom or any of that. He's not trying to prove that, you know, this is just about this week's matchup and winning one game. That's what we're going to hear from him. But you get the feeling that that's not what the media wants to hear. They, they want a storyline here. They want some sauce. Yeah, but he's going to do it in a deadpan voice <laughs> that is going to have sort of hilarious undertones to it. Beautiful. Okay. With that, let's wrap it up for this week. Uh, as always, more content at www.fandomanalytics.com, especially content related to the next generation fandom survey really some great stuff out there so please take a look uh beyond that thanks for listening and we'll talk again next week